Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, COVID Crossroads. We had a good conversation with the premiers last night at which uh, each premier, one after the other, talked about uh, the additional measures they're going to be bringing in in their regions. Uh, we're seeing uh, a really troubling surge across the country. If we continue on the current pace, it is estimated that there will be over 10,000 cases daily by early December. Rising cases, confusing restrictions and higher costs. Should the federal government be pressuring the provinces to take harsher measures? Is the crisis slipping out of control? We speak with the Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi on the new restrictions in Alberta, and then CTV's infectious disease specialist, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi weighs in on what he sees as disastrous policies from some provinces. Then, China challenges. As proud as we are of our relationship with Hong Kong, we find ourselves at a challenging moment. Canada remains deeply concerned about China's passage of the new national security law. Is Canada's new offer to help people suffering under China's crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong enough? Is China running a secret network in Canada to suppress criticism of their country? We speak with the Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino about their new policy, and we speak to the former head of Canada's spy agency, CSIS, Dick Fadden, who gives his take. Then, American chaos. This election is not over, far from it. We have only begun the process of obtaining an accurate, honest vote count. We are fighting for the rights of all Americans. Why does Donald Trump keep alleging there's massive electoral fraud of the U.S. without providing any significant evidence? Is this undermining the democracy of the United States? We'll hear from a pro-Trump Republican strategist and an anti-Trump advisor to the famed Lincoln Project today. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. We're seeing record spikes this morning across the country. So I urge the premiers and the mayors to please do the right thing. Act now to protect public health. If you think something is missing in the support we're offering your citizens, tell us. No way to sugarcoat it. The second wave of COVID is cresting all over the country with terrifying new predictions. For example, Ontario, which is breaking records almost daily, released new modeling that is predicting up to 6,000 new cases a day by mid-December. Those numbers would overwhelm hospitals. Quebec is so bad the Premier there is threatening to shut down schools. Long-term care homes in Manitoba are getting absolutely crushed again. And Alberta, whose Premier is in isolation again, announced new restrictions. But even the Prime Minister is now telling the provinces this all may not be enough. Is a full shutdown, the so-called circuit breaker, as many doctors are calling for, what's needed? Or will this crush business and the economy? What's the right balance? Let's begin our coverage today with the mayor of Calgary, Naid Nenshi, uh, who's on the front lines of uh, another outbreak there. Uh, mayor, first of all, great to have you back on the program. These numbers are not good. These we numbers are really bad, Evan. And, you know, I feel like I've been saying for the last few weeks, this is terrible. And here in Alberta, I, I'm not sure that message was really heard. I think it's heard now. You know, we have to remember this is about exponential growth. If we're doubling every week, that means that if we're at 62% uh, capacity in ICU beds today, which we are in Alberta, next week there won't be any ICU beds. So it's critical, it's urgent, the time to act is now. But is it 
enough. You've got in Alberta more than 400 Alberta doctors and a number of health unions sent a letter to the Premier on the day that he announced new restrictions saying, this is not nearly enough. We need the circuit breaker. We need a full shutdown. He's still allowing weddings with more than 50 people. Those have proven to be super spreader events. Are you with the doctors or are you with the incremental approach of the province? As always, I'm with evidence-based decision-making. I'm with looking at what's worked in other places and doing that. And I really, really dislike this narrative that has come up that it says it's about public health or the economy. It's actually a foolish thing to say, because if we go to full outbreak, if we go to New York in February, there's no economy. Right. It's done. You know, some people use the example of Sweden. No, oh, look, they didn't lock down. Well, not only did they have a death rate many times higher than their neighbors, they also contracted their economy 8.6% uh, in the second quarter. So you can't have one without the other. And we have to be super thoughtful about what interventions are going to keep people alive and also save the economy. So is the right answer a full lockdown? Well, the people in Melbourne uh, in Australia would tell you it is. Others would tell you that you can do surgical things, but they have to be evidence-based. And I think the challenge here in Alberta is the government didn't do a great job of explaining the the rationale behind the restrictions. So, you know, I've got a lot of hockey dads and hockey moms saying, right. so my kid can't play hockey, but buddy can still go to the casino. You know, how does this make sense? And, you know, I wish that the province would have clearly said, I'm guessing now that we're having outbreaks in the schools. We want to keep the schools open. That's important to everyone. So let's restrict kids' activities outside of school so that we can get the outbreaks cleared out of the schools. And then I think people would have said, okay, that makes sense. Okay, but... But, but what we need is this kind of evidence. Okay, but you, we've got evidence. And you know that. So you've got doctors saying, let's circuit break, because this is inevitable. The incremental approach that the Premier announced won't work. Rachel Notley, the, you know, the... Um, leader of the opposition and the former premier said that Jason Kenney's allowed his targets, their previously stated targets to, to uh, blow past those and he's not taking action. I just wonder, you've got the federal government, you've got the premiers and then you've got the municipalities and you guys are closest to what's happening here. Uh, is that, no one wants, seems to want to play the bad guy and say, look, we just got to lock it down. Do you feel like as a mayor, it's all coming down on your shoulders to finally do something? I mean, always. <laughs> right, But here's a crash course in Canadian federalism, which is it your powers and authorities vary by province. So in Ontario, for example, the public health lives in the cities. In Alberta, it lives with the province. Right. So, you know, this is not a fake background behind me. I'm sitting in our emergency operations center here in Calgary. We've got the expertise. We've got the staff. We've got the ability and the evidence to make changes. We're working with top academics at the University of Calgary and through our network of mayors around the world, including Johns Hopkins and Harvard, to help us figure out what to do, but I don't have the power to do it. And so certainly who that's so the case, who, so that's who, the case like, everywhere uh, when you're a mayor, but this is particularly frustrating. And I get it. So, okay, so let's get practical. Days count. Days mean lives. Days mean jobs. Days mean businesses. Days mean uh, exponential growth in this thing. So time, time is of the essence, as you know. What needs to happen? Start with the federal government now who have Justin Trudeau warned the premiers, right? You know, get going uh, and then go to the premiers. What in your view should they be doing? So I had a chance to speak with the prime minister this week. Uh, he reaffirmed his commitments on the monetary side, which is important. This stuff really matters. We got a lot of fiscal problems that we're gonna have to clean up 
Right now, our focus needs to be on health. There are things the federal government can do around helping us with isolation sites for multi-generational families, technical things like that. Ultimately, the provinces have to make the big decisions. And the challenge is, as you say, we're in a matter of days. We're in a short game now. But we only know the impact of what we do two weeks later because of the incubation period of the virus. I'm not convinced we have two weeks. Uh, if, if I'd been in the premier's chair, I probably would have gone further. I don't know hmm. if I would have gone all the way to a circuit breaker, but I certainly would have gone further for this two week period. But ultimately, uh, it's a short game now, and we have got to be able to be incredibly nimble. I will say that I was pleased when the premier said, if this doesn't work, further restrictions are inevitable. Because a week or two ago, he was implying that we would never have further restrictions in Alberta, which would be a recipe for disaster. All right, I got to leave it there. Let's just hope we all act together and this curve bends the right way. Mayor Nenshi, take care. I always appreciate your time, sir. Thanks. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Coming up next, should the federal government be doing more to help the provinces with COVID-19? Did the Prime Minister scold them for opening up too fast? The Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino joins us next on that and on Canada's new policy on Hong Kong. Is a China backlash coming? Stay right here with Question Period. The unified COVID front is starting to show cracks this past week. Prime Minister Trudeau warned the provinces do the right thing, implying maybe they're opening too quickly. Meanwhile, provinces are dealing with massive COVID spikes and debating a full lockdown. Is the federal government getting frustrated with how the provinces are dealing with the crisis as we are hitting record spikes? We asked Canada's Health Minister and Interprovincial Relations Minister to join. Neither were available, but we wanted to talk about that and the government's new stance against China's crackdown in Hong Kong. So we're happy to be joined by Canada's Immigration Minister, Marco Mendicino. Uh, Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I'll get to China in a minute, but let's talk about COVID cases which are spiking. Federal government gave the provinces $19 billion for the Safe Restart program. Reports say much of that money is not spent. Is the federal government frustrated that the provinces aren't using that money as cases are getting to dangerous levels? Look, as a Toronto MP, as an Ontario minister, I'm hearing from my constituents that they'd like to see Ontario move more quickly when it comes to uh, fighting COVID-19. At the same time, you have seen a very healthy degree of collaboration between the federal government and all of our provincial and territorial partners. And I think on the whole, that has reflected uh, in our overall position. But there is definitely a moment right now that we are experiencing. We're in the midst of a second wave, and we do need to act decisively. And that's why today you heard the government uh, announce $1.5 billion uh, additional for workers uh, to position them to get back to work when it comes to training right. them up. So we'll continue to work with the provinces as much as we can. There has not been nearly enough testing and that has been procured a lot by the federal government. So this seems to be a joint responsibility, but I'm just trying to figure this out. What did the prime minister say when he said to the provinces, do the right thing? I know they had a call on Thursday night uh, and I know there's new money came for training, but I'm talking about now, every second lives matter here. When he said do the right thing, is he, was he saying to the provinces, I want more shutdown, less incrementalism? Is that the message? I think he was saying work with us. Uh, it has been to our mutual success thus far, and that in order for us to ensure that we beat back this second wave, that we continue to collaborate, and that is what Canadians want. I mean, I've listened to a lot of my constituents, and I think by and large, uh, people are happy that there has been good communication, that there has been collaboration, and we need that to continue in order to meet the challenge of the second wave. Let me just quickly go to China because it's something that you were uh, at the front end this past week. 
we all know about China's attempt to crush the democratic movement in Hong Kong. We've seen what happened. You introduced a plan for new and expedited immigration pathways for Hong Kong citizens to come to Canada and a three-year open work permit for recent Hong Kong graduates and those with essential work experience. Why now? Like, what is that about? The announcement yesterday is set against the backdrop of a gravely concerning situation in Hong Kong. And that includes the expulsion of four democratically elected legislators uh, by China. And so we're, we're very, very concerned about that. But at the same time, as part of our overall approach to immigration, we felt that there was an opportunity to create this a new initiative, which would invite an opportunity for young Hong Kongers who possess the skills, the experience, and the talent to meet our immigration needs today. China's crushing democratic uh, dissent there, and that violates the handover agreement when China took over from the UK when they took over the semi-autonomous region, Hong Kong. Will Canada offer increased or expedited asylum seekers for those people who are on the front lines who are deeply concerned about a crackdown of China? Well, one thing you didn't mention in your summary of the announcement yesterday, but I'll highlight now, are the additional protections that we've added to our asylum system that reflect the situation in Hong Kong. And very briefly, for failed asylum claimants here in Hong Kong, we will provide them with access to a faster pre-risk removal assessment. And in addition to that, we'll assure that any future asylum claimant is not disqualified by virtue alone of having been charged under China's national security law. And for those who will raise the question, well, what about everybody else? I will just tell you very clearly that no one will be disqualified from our asylum system or for applying for any immigration route as long as they have not committed any crime that would be recognized under Canadian law. Okay, that's interesting. Not under the Chinese security law, which is the controversial law. But you've also had in the past week a parliamentary committee concluding that China is committing a genocide against the Muslim Uyghur population. And by the way, the testimony was chilling. Does the Canadian federal government believe China is committing a genocide? Well, I will say, as Minister Champagne has said, that we are gravely concerned, and he has been leading calls to get access to the Xinjiang province so that we can find out just the extent of the chilling facts, to use your word, and that we can respond to it appropriately. I will also say, Evan, that we're going to read this report very carefully. And it's the commitment of this government to work with the members of that committee, the Subcommittee on International Human Rights, and all parliamentarians to respond to this human rights situation. I know you asked about genocide. I do not want to preempt that debate in Parliament. Okay, but look, you've got the Parliamentary Committee calling it genocide. You've, you know, the crackdown going on in Hong Kong. You've got a Globe and Mail report that says they're operating a spy system here called Operation Fox Hunt, where Chinese uh, agents are actively trying to suppress dissent here in Canada. And then you've got a warning from the Chinese ambassador here to basically say, stay out of our domestic issues. Like, there's a lot going on in China. When will Canada take a tougher response on China? I haven't even mentioned the fact that two Canadians, the two Michael Spavor and Kovrig, have been in prison for more than 700 days. You're quite right. Uh, it is a complex situation, but Canada has taken a very strong and principled stand, and I'll just highlight the measures again. We've suspended our extradition treaty to Hong Kong. We were the first country to do that. We've revised our travel advice, and we are restricting goods to Hong Kong. 
We are uh, certainly, by and making this announcement against that backdrop, uh, reflecting the situation on the ground, but also hoping that young Hong Kongers and recent graduates who may be casting their eyes abroad to look to build a better life will choose Canada. That will strengthen the people-to-people -people ties between Canada and the right. people of Hong Kong and will build a better country for us. Well, why not uh, call in the Chinese ambassador to talk about Operation Fox Hunt? Why not uh, say no to Huawei? I mean, if the Chinese government is doing this in Hong Kong, if they're operating Operation Fox Hunt here, if parliamentarians think they're committing a genocide, really, is that all Canada can muster? Evan, we've taken a very strong and principled stand. I think your viewers would see that. We have been at the forefront of responding to the situation on the ground. And yesterday's announcement is about an opportunity. It's about an opportunity to strengthen those ties, to encourage young Hong Kongers who have something to offer Canada, and to ensure that we are building a better country for Canada. That's certainly my focus, and that's one of the reasons why I'm optimistic about this announcement yesterday, as well as our immigration plan, which is also about building uh, our economy and building that long-term right. prosperity that we are all striving towards. I got to leave it there. Always a pleasure to have Marco Mendicino, the immigration minister, on the program. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Evan. All right, coming up, is a full lockdown needed? Are provinces doing enough? Would harsh restrictions kill thousands of businesses? We get a breakdown of that when the Scrum joins us and our special guest, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Stay right here with Question Period. We have to do a balance. You know, we, we, we could go, the easy thing to do, folks, is sit back, let's just shut down the whole province. <laughs> like, how, how, how do you how do you deal with the uh, you know mental health again of, of people? It's easy for people to say just shut everything down uh, when they're guaranteed a paycheck every single week. A COVID controversy is raging across the country, raging in provinces like Ontario. For example, did the provincial government there ignore the advice of some of its own public health officials when they launched their new restriction plan? Doctors from Public Health Ontario told the Toronto Star that the Premier didn't even heed their advice to keep the thresholds a lot lower for restrictions. They had advised the toughest restrictions to kick in at 25 positive tests per 100,000, not 100 cases per 100,000 or 10% positivity rate that the province accepted it. Doug Ford first shot back, saying, I have the support of my chief public health officer, Dr. David Williams, but then on Friday, he backed down and changed the levels. But with Ontario breaking COVID records, every province is suddenly seeing dangerous spikes. Are the provinces doing enough? Is a total lockdown coming? To talk about that, the scrum is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. Dr. Abdu Sharkawi is CTV's infectious disease specialist and our special guest. Also joining us, the former NDP leader and now our CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Good to see all of you. Doc, I gotta yeah, start with you. You're on the front lines, and by the way, we always thank you for your incredible work. Cases are spiking everywhere. Uh, you looked what happened where you live in Ontario. What did you make of those restriction levels and what's being done right now? Well, first of all, let's say that it was rather shocking that uh, the red zone, the restriction levels being the highest, it has taken this long for that to be advanced to other areas besides Peel Region, for example. Uh, that should have happened some time ago. It's obviously disconcerting that there was this dissonance between uh, what the Premier had said in terms of how these restrictions were mapped out and what our public health experts and epidemiologists uh, said was actually the case. Um, we're in a pretty dire situation right now. I think it's becoming abundantly clear. This is a nationwide crisis, really with the exception 
of the Northern Territories and the Atlantic bubble, everyone is really experiencing a serious resurgence of cases of COVID-19. And I think the principles of containment need to be uniformly applied across Canada. I think that the error that we've made is going through this piecemeal approach of wait and see, going through a nuanced you know, dance, if you will, of COVID-19, and the dance isn't working anymore. We're breaking each other's legs. We're doing it economically. We're doing it in terms of lives that are lost. We need the hammer. And that hammer needs to be applied with conviction. It needs to be applied with some assertiveness. And we need to apply the support that's necessary from an economic point of view to the people that would suffer if that hammer is laid down. But make no mistake about it, this nuanced approach is going to fail. It's too late and it's not significant enough to do the to do the trick. Tom, uh, let's talk about incrementalism. Quebec, the premier there, talking about shutting down schools, new restrictions in Alberta, but they still allow weddings of 50. What do you make of this incrementalism? They're all saying, look, we can't just shut down because we'll destroy businesses. If only we could have had the clarity of Dr. Charkawi across Canada. I mean, that's the number one problem that we've got. We do not have consistency from province to province. A lot of the decisions are more political than they are public health, and that's a, a real problem. In the province of Quebec, for example, they decided to go ahead with Halloween across the province against all common sense. Now, almost two weeks after Halloween, we're going through a huge problem. We've got big spikes, and they are obviously connected, according to all of the observers. Yesterday, I was listening to Premier Jason Kenney in Alberta saying, well, you know, we've got to get really tough. So last call in the bars around 10 o'clock, there shouldn't be any bars open right now. That's the obvious thing, but they don't want to make that decision. So I think that at some point there's going to have to be leadership. I think that Mr. Trudeau has a lot of tools in his toolbox and he should be using them and show some sort of leadership on this. Because you know what, Evan, it is dire and I'm not an alarmist, but I am alarmed at what I'm seeing across the country right now. Joyce, uh, what, I mean, look, the, they've been asked about the emergency measures. The federal government has not even uh, touched that. Uh, what do you make of the federal response and then the provincial responses, which, you know, they're talking about maybe a lockdown, but there's a lot of incrementalism. I understand the politics of the pandemic and you can't deny them and you can't cast them aside. The premiers want to get reelected. Uh, these are politicians. And even if it is a pandemic, you know, they remain politicians. So the federal government doesn't want to intervene because it would look like, you know, big footing the provinces and into their jurisdiction. The provinces, listen, you heard Doug Ford not long ago. He's being pressured by businesses. Uh, he said, look, I mean, you guys, it breaks my heart. I get their phone calls, premier. I'm losing my business. I'm losing my house. So, you know, there's a lot of things to take into account. The bottom line is the cases are not going down, right. so we have to get draconian, and we have to do it, right. even if it's for three weeks. Let's do it. Okay, Dr. Sharkawi, a lot of doctors are saying we need something called a circuit breaker, two-week total lockdown. On the other side, I've spoken to the head of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses and said this second wave is going to cause tens of thousands more businesses to go bankrupt. First of all, will a circuit breaker actually work in the short term and actually allow the economy to open up? Is that what we need? I think that's exactly what we need. And believe me, I get a lot of negative you know, attention, a lot of flack from people in small business uh, communities 
And I understand their frustration. I understand their sense of despair and desperation. And I want them to survive. I want them to get through this. But I'll tell you this, I can't imagine how allowing these small businesses to operate at 30% capacity, 50% capacity, even 70% capacity is going to keep them afloat. What they need is to function and operate at 100% capacity, and that's not happening right now. So we need a situation that's going to be able to really get our numbers down to allow them to operate in the kind of environment they need to survive. Right. And a circuit breaker is one way to do that, where we jolt our entire community into recognizing that this is not something we can take any liberties with. It's a finite period of time. There's no ambiguity around it. There's no way that you should find loopholes to do X or Y or Z. You do what you're supposed to do. You get those numbers right. down and then you open up. But it sounds- And then you give those businesses a chance to survive. Tom, I get it, but it's, it's harder than you think because you know you got businesses, oh, you're gonna let Walmart open for groceries and not the small time, uh, the small business. We haven't spread, we've done all the right things. So big box stores open, we can't, kids go to school, we can't open. You know, when you get to the details, it's darn difficult to do the quote, total lockdown and the circuit breaker. Right. But we should also be learning from the mistakes of the past year, and we should be coming up with a system of sharing best practices and, if need be, imposing them. I mean, if you look at BC's result, right now they're, they're getting a lot of cases, but their total deaths from COVID-19 in relation to their population are still incredibly low. If you look at Quebec, Quebec has over 60% of the deaths from COVID-19 with only 22% of the population of Canada. It's been a disaster. But right now we're seeing that disaster preparing itself on some of the Western provinces because we're looking at these long-term care centers and all of the explosions of COVID-19 in those many centers. And I'm saying to myself, did nobody learn from what we just went through here? It's a disaster what we went through here in Quebec in long-term care. And I'm just so concerned. And I, I, I'm so relieved to hear Dr. Sharkawi speaking with such clarity and such common sense. I'm just wondering why it is that those best practices have not been mm. imposed instead of just being suggestions as they are now. Uh, Joyce, last word. I know that we had some hope this week. Uh, we hope that vaccine comes. Folks, it's going to be middle of next year and maybe the end of next year till most people get that. So the vaccine's still a long way off. So, so last word on, you know, we got a long dark tunnel ahead of us. Well, we do, and you heard the Prime Minister last Friday who said, uh, you know, he had 22 meetings with the Premiers and told them this time, listen, we're going to have to make some very difficult choices if the cases keep climbing. I want to know what those difficult choices are. Will it be between the COVID patient and the cancer patient? Like, we, I know that it's difficult. You, you said it well, between the big business, the big box store, the small businesses. But at one point, we have got to stop the, the, we've got to stop these cases that are rising. And if it means, you know, the circuit breaker, then maybe we should do that because those difficult choices ahead, I feel, mm. are worse than what we're talking about now. All right, I got to leave it there. Dr. Sharkawi, Tom Mulcair, thanks so much for joining us. Joyce will return later for our scrum. Coming up next, American chaos. How did Trump supporters justify a position about voter fraud where there's no credible evidence of it? A pro-Trump Republican strategist and a never-Trump advisor to the famed Lincoln Project join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. I think that uh, I know from my discussions with foreign leaders thus far that they are 
hopeful that the United States democratic institutions are viewed once again as being strong and enduring. And, uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's all going to come to fruition on January 20th. The electoral chaos in the U.S. just continues. President Donald Trump and lots of his supporters continue to claim that the entire U.S. election was a fraud and that he actually won. He has not provided any significant evidence of this. And most of his court challenges, which he certainly is entitled to launch, have been tossed out. Even the Department of Homeland Security released a statement saying this was, quote, the most secure election in American history. There is, quote, no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. So why is the president undermining the credibility of the U.S. election system? Will he ever concede? Let's begin our coverage with Tom Nichols. He's a senior advisor to the famed Lincoln Project. That's a committee of former Republicans who worked to prevent the re-election of Donald Trump. Tom, uh, great to have you on the program. What do you make of President Trump's ongoing contention and lawsuits that the election was a fraud? Have you seen any evidence? Of course there isn't any evidence. And if there were, uh, the Department of Homeland Security would be telling us this. Um, there's just no foundation for it. There's no factual evidence for it. But nothing the president's doing is surprising. I think all of us who've been, who have watched President Trump for four years knew that he'd be a better ender, that, that he would go into the trenches and he'd file lawsuits and he would go into denial. Um, none of this is surprising. The only thing that would have been surprising is if he had conceded gracefully, which no one ever expected him to do. But, you know, I get to get emails and you're going to come on and people are going to say, wait a second, and they'll take this Fox News or this radio or this from Donald Trump. They'll say, wait, there's a dozen affidavits in Pennsylvania. And what about Georgia? And what about Arizona? These states have been called, but the votes aren't certified. And so-and-so has come forward with allegations. What do you do with all that? What I find most interesting about this is that even Fox News has now rejected um, all of these stories of electoral fraud. There are always going to be people who are going to come forward and say, I think I saw somebody fill out a ballot. Um, that happens in every election in the United States. Uh, nothing, nothing overturns these results. Um, recounts usually don't move the a final result by more than a couple of hundred ballots in any direction. There's no way the president's going to overturn 10, 12, and 14,000 vote leads uh, in major states. Um, it, it, it's smoke and mirrors. And even Fox and some of the president's own enablers have started to walk away from this because, uh, thank God, there are Americans who don't want to undermine their own elections. What if he doesn't concede, Tom? Who cares? Um, you know, at, on According to our Constitution, on January 20th at noon, when Joe Biden says, so help me God, he's no longer the president. So um, what, what kind of damage is this doing? What I mean, is this doing damage? It seems like it is. There are tens and maybe 70 million Trump supporters. I don't know what percentage of them believe this election was a fraud. This is undermining the fundamental instrument of democracy in the United States of America. How corrosive is this? How damaging is it? That's the bigger problem. When you ask whether Trump will concede, um, you know, Trump will probably say something like, well, I have no choice but to accept this outcome, but I never concede. The, the real problem is that he is doing immense damage to the American political system. This is one of the reasons that uh, the people like me who um, ended up with the um, label of never Trumpers, this is what we knew he would do from the beginning, that for four years, even longer during his campaign for president, the, uh, Donald Trump and his coterie have attacked the fundamental institutions of American democracy. 
and he's going to do it on the way out. He's going to try and uh, pull the pillars of the temple down with him as he goes. And it's going to do a lot of damage. It's going to take a long time. There are people who will probably go to their graves never believing that this was a fair election and probably not believing that any future elections are fair elections. There's just not, not much we can do about that. All right, I got to leave it there. Tom Nichols from the Lincoln Project. Great to have you on the program, Tom. Thanks. Thank you. All right, now I want to turn to the other side, someone who we asked to debate Tom Nichols, but he didn't want to. He is a Republican strategist and a former Republican congressional candidate, Ford O'Connell. Ford, great to have you back on the program. Look, for a lot of us outside, we've heard the president's allegations. So far, there is no credible evidence. Even Homeland Security says this was a good election. There's just a lot of allegations. Tell me, seriously, how can a president make a conclusion about an election before there's any significant evidence? So there is evidence. The question I think you're asking is, is there enough evidence to overturn the election? And obviously, we don't know that answer. But President Trump obviously has filed hundreds of lawsuits to figure out whether right. or not that is the case. And, but remember, to have that evidence, you have to have what is called a voter audit. Okay, and without a voter audit, you're not going to get access to the voter systems of the individual states and be able to pr provide the right. proof that you're talking okay, about. Okay, but for it, look, and you and I have known each other for a long time. When I'm reading statements from the Department of Homeland Security saying this was the most secure election in American history, there is no evidence that any voting system would deleted or lost votes or change votes or was in any way compromised. The president has immediately said before any evidence that this was a fraud and he's won. The way the law works is you have to have evidence before you draw a conclusion. The president's got a back asward. He's had a conclusion, and now he's saying, let me look for the evidence. How do you support that? Evan, I'm a lawyer, so thank you for reciting what the law is for me. That said, though, you can't have evidence without a voter audit. And what the president is pushing for, particularly in the state of Georgia, is a voter audit. You're not going to get evidence without an audit. You're giving me a chicken and egg situation. So what the president currently is pushing for, particularly in Georgia, among other states in Pennsylvania, is a voter audit. That is a re-canvassing hand count so we can go ballot by ballot to see whether or not the people who cast the votes are who they say they are and whether or not they're eligible and whether or not there's any chain of custody issues. Do you really, let me ask you seriously, do you believe, and we all know it's in every president's right or any candidate's right to challenge things. But it doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of folks. Every time a state is declared for the president, Alaska is declared, the president says, great. And his supporters say, we, we love that. And then a state is declared against them. Uh-oh, must be massive voter fraud. Doesn't that smell bad, Ford? No, and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, in America, it's the state legislatures of the 50 states that actually determine the election rules for those states. And those states are not certified till December 14th. The media does not call who wins and loses a presidential election. Number two. No, but two so on that, whenever something is declared in, in Donald Trump's favor, he's okay with it. When it's declared not in his favor, suddenly we have to wait until I get the certification and the media is in, in on it. Ford, the... These are, we're not talking about 500 votes in Florida in the year 2000. We're talking about tens of thousands of votes, I agree, in multiple states. Is the allegation there's some big conspiracy theory run by the Bidens and the post office and big tech? Like, what is this thing and why isn't there any significant evidence yet? 
Hold on. It was the Democrats that pushed the post office. Let me make my point about Georgia right now. In two, in two months, we're going to have an election in Georgia, okay, that is going to determine the balance of power in, the, in America. And essentially, if we're going to run that same election again in Georgia, we need to be clear that there's integrity and trust in the voting system in Georgia alone. And let me tell you something else. Many of these states that are in question, Evan, whether we're talking about Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, these are states that are going to be contested in 2022 and 2024. So guess what? We're going to be spending millions of dollars. We need to put trust back in there and we didn't know that we actually have the procedures it's not just right. about this election evan it's also about the future because okay. let me tell you well, something well, else. i can remember when democrats were screaming about mail-in ballots back in 2008 but, but, and frankly they were calling for recounts in florida in 12 for and in wisconsin you're a lawyer you're a lawyer that, that's not relevant to this case but i will say this L let me just ask you one thing because i know you're a republican and you're passionate about this but if the danger here is if you believe this election was fraud, then you believe that the people elected in this election don't have legitimacy. That will corrode democracy. I just, I'm just trying to understand, are you loyal to Donald Trump, and some call that a cult of personality, or are you loyal to the Constitution and a peaceful transition of power? And then, yeah, go fight for Georgia and the Senate runoff there. I get all that stuff, but is this going too far? No, it's not going too far because, again, the deadline is December 14th. The president has the right to do this. The American people have the right to know whether or not you have the procedures in place. And as for the peaceful transfer of power, excuse me very much, but in 2016, Barack Obama undermined the peaceful transfer of power by spying on the Trump campaign and creating essentially oh. what became the yeah. impeachment. Don't send me a bouquet of BS on that stuff. Are you really going back? Or do we not have an impeachment? Come on. This was spying on. No. Are you legitimately going to come on this program and say there is uh, Obama spying has tried to undermine the legitimacy of Donald Trump? Come yeah, on. No, it is undermining the peaceful transfer of power. And let me tell you something it else. Did not, there was a peaceful transition of power, and you know it, and I it, know it. And it happened, but, and now it's going to happen again. Well, there's no question there's eventually going to be a peaceful transfer of power in America because that's how America works. And it's been doing that for over 200 years. All right, Ford O'Connell, got to leave it there. Thanks for joining us today. We also spoke to Kirsten Hillman, Canada's ambassador to the United States, about the chaos there and what a Biden administration will mean for Canada. You can watch that entire interview at ctvnews.ca slash QP. Coming up on the program, as revelations come to light about Chinese espionage in Canada, the government changes course on Hong Kong. Will this send a message to Beijing that Canada won't be pushed around anymore? Will there be a Chinese backlash? The former head of CSIS, Canada's spy agency, Dick Fadden, joins the Scrum as our special guest. Stay right here with Question Period. China continues to think that they can just put enough pressure on us and we will, we will give in, where that's exactly the opposite of our position. It's extremely unfortunate that they've detained these two Michaels uh, for 700 days now, and we're doing everything we can to, uh, to try and resolve it. But we will not bend on our principles on the rule of law. Operation Fox Hunt, that's what Beijing calls their spy operation in Canada that is targeting people who criticize their policies. Canada's spy agency CSIS confirmed to the Globe and Mail the operation has been underway since 2014. Just one more example of how Canada 
has been pushed around by China. China, of course, continues to hold two Canadians, Michael Spavro and Michael Kovrig, now for over 700 days in arbitrary detention. But Canada pushed back this past week. A parliamentary committee openly condemned China's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims as a genocide. And the government then introduced new immigration policies for Hong Kong citizens looking to flee the former British colony under the now increased control by Beijing under new security laws. Let's bring back the scrum to find out about that. Joyce Napier is back for CTV News. Tonda McCharles, senior reporter at the Toronto Star, joins us. And our special guest this round is the former CSIS director and former national security advisor to both Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, Dick Fadden. Uh, Tonda and uh, Joyce and Dick, great to have all of you here. Dick, uh, give us a sense how serious an allegation this is about Operation Fox Hunt and what it tells you about how China's operating in Canada. Well, I think it's pretty serious, in particular because the same thing is going on in the United States and I suspect a large number of other countries. It's equally important, I think, to remember uh, that this is just one amongst any number of programs that the Chinese have operating against the West. But this is particularly concerning because one of the basic rules of international law and practice is that one state does not interfere with the internal operations of another state. And when agents of the Chinese state come to Canada and intimidate Canadians, be they of Chinese ancestry or not, for one reason or the other, they are effectively saying that they don't respect our sovereignty. So that's a very serious matter indeed. And the fact that CSIS uh, confirmed to, uh, to Bob Fife that this was the case, I think signifies that they view it as very, very serious. If these were just a few isolated cases, they would not have said anything. Yeah, Tonda, weigh in there because this has been a week where Canada sort of seems to have marshaled a stiffer spine against China, but China's warned Canada not to do that. What do you make of this? Well, Canada has been warning for a long time that they were going to reset their China policy. Uh, but look, I think what you saw this week was um, a partial reset. and. Canada taking a position that, yeah, they will accept Hong Kongers and ease their path here. But there was nothing there for uh, many of the thousands of people who are find themselves persecuted in Hong Kong for expressing their own views, their own political views n under a new national security law. And what you're seeing, you know, China's the first country that always criticizes other countries for using the long reach of uh, their own law and reaching into other places, when in fact that's what they're clearly doing here. Um, there's clashing views, right? But there is perhaps a step the government could take that they haven't taken, which is to register foreign agents on Canadian soil. And we don't do that, uh, again, because right. we're a free country, where free association is a, an inherent value. So it's a pretty tricky one for the government to resolve. Yeah, Joyce, I'll get you to weigh in, and then I'll swing back to Dick on this one. Joyce, uh, what do you make of how Canada's responded with this? You know, there's a couple of policies, but we still got the two Michaels stuck in detention. Absolutely, and they hope, because we know the Prime Minister spoke to the President-elect Joe Biden about China. So I think uh, the government's hope is that with Joe Biden uh, in uh, the White House, things will change. Right, and just with Dick, I'll swing back to you. I should just say, just on the asylum, if any of these protesters have been charged under the new security laws, that would not prevent them from seeking asylum in Canada. That maybe was one small concession or concession that Canada made. Dick, I know you wanted to weigh in. No, I just, uh, let me comment first on what uh, Joyce has just said. With her usual uh, generosity of spirit, she suggested that maybe with Biden, we might be able to get some movement uh, with China. I don't think that's going to happen. It's not in the national interest of the United States to push this beyond a certain point, and I can't see China all of a sudden backing down. Uh, so I think liberating the two Michaels is going to remain an ongoing problem for a little while. I guess the other point I'd like to make is um, 
One of the difficulties of dealing with this kind of foreign interference is it's extremely difficult to deal with because most people in Canada don't want to report it to the Mounties or to CSIS and even if they do it's not clear in Canada what we can do about it and to Tonda's point maybe registering foreign agents will help I think we should do that but let's call a spade a shovel if the Chinese state sends over agents here to do what we're talking about now which is to say to intimidate Canadians they ain't going to register so I think it's a deeper problem than we've been able to deal with and will be able to deal with for a while because this is going on everywhere and the Chinese are very adept at just staying beneath the radar and, and do this on an ongoing basis. So I think it's very, very worrisome. And I know this is like a broken record, but we're not going to be able to deal with this unless we get a coalition of a significant number of countries saying this is unacceptable and really push back with something significant in respect of the Chinese. But there are things, I mean, maybe we will get that, that coalition and, and as Joyce mentioned, maybe it's the Biden part of that, but Tonda, uh, there are things we could do. We still haven't made a decision on Huawei, like our Five Eyes allies. We didn't even, after Operation Fox Hunt was exposed, they didn't even call in the Chinese ambassador. Could we be taking a tougher stance in the future? It was instructive. If you listened closely to the Prime Minister this week, at the end of the week, he said when he was directly asked about this, about the, the actions of those Chinese officials on Canadian soil, he condemned it, but he pivoted very quickly to say that China's course of diplomacy tactics won't work here, uh, and then dove right back into the whole question around the two Michaels, Kovrig and Spaver, who were in prison in China. That is in front of their mind, and so on every question regarding China, they come back to that. They're very mindful of their language. They don't want to uh, risk any further harm to those men. Yeah, maybe that hostage taken works though, Joyce, if they're not saying anything because of it. I know you wanted to jump in, go for it. Well, I do because I, although I thank, you know, Dick for, for calling my, my generosity of spirit, it is actually that coalition that Canadians are hoping Joe Biden can build. Will Joe Biden be able to free the two Michaels? That is very doubtful. Uh, because they're in prison in China. We know it's an arbitrary one, but the fact that Joe Biden will eventually be the president of the United States may mean that that coalition that is so important to Canada, and we've heard it from all sorts of sources, that that's what we need. We need the allies to band together against China and to show a common front. And uh, with Joe Biden, that may be possible. I'm not saying it will, but it may be actually more possible than it was with Donald Trump. That's right. for sure. All right, got to leave it there. Tonda, Joyce, and Dick, thanks so much. Special shout out to Dick, the only one outside suffering through that November cold. Made it look easy. Thanks, Dick. And thank you for watching and always participating in our debates about our great democracies. We will be back here in seven short days. Hug your loved ones if it's safe.